This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And that's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an oil man out of Midland, Texas, named Jim Henry. In 1984, all the bankers and all the consultants were predicting that the price of oil was going to continue to go on up. It was about $30 a barrel, and it was going to go up to $100 per barrel, except a consultant called Henry Grappi. And Grappi predicted that it was going to tank. And instead of trying to predict what the price would be, I said, what would happen if the price goes up? And I'd say, well, I'd be a lot richer. What if it goes down? Well, I'd be broke. So I better prepare for if it goes down. I don't want to be broke. I've got a saying in there that says, I'd rather be around than rich. (laughs) (laughs) So I sold half of our oil, and then 1986, it went through the floor. Everybody was wrong except Henry Grappi. So we were able to withstand that. We had 30 people in our company. We had to let 15 go because we couldn't afford them. Now, the emotional toll was terrible. Firing good people that have helped our company a lot and then have to go out and try to find a job. There were no jobs in the oil industry. And I didn't think that was very ethical for us to do it, but it's kind of like throwing people out of a lifeboat to keep the lifeboat afloat. And we vowed from that day to this that we would never, ever let an employee go because we didn't have enough money. Then when we hired a consultant named Walter Scott, and he said something that revolutionized our company. He said, Jim, when you're doing well, pay your employees more. (laughs) I said, that that makes sense. (laughs) So we started an incentive compensation program. And then when our company does well, our net worth increases. The employees get a quarter of that increase. Then we have 75% of the increase to help continue to grow the company. So we made lots of millionaires, probably about 50, I guess. It's really rewarding. See, that means some people in our accounting department have lake houses. So (laughs) that's... (laughs) We try to make sure that everybody be taken care of, not just the top people. So I asked Jim, what are their bonuses typically like? Probably twice their salary. I mean, get their salary plus another. Uh, In the really good years, they'll get twice their salary and bonuses and people (coughs) pay off their house. Jim then turned to his team member and asked her this. Have you all paid up your house yet? She then nodded her head up and down. (laughs) My father was uh, born in Marion, Kentucky, and he, in high school, read a book called Soldiers of Fortune by Richard Harding Davis. And it was about mining engineers that went to South America. So he decided in high school that he's going to become a mining engineer and go to South America. So he actually did that. Uh, and he, nobody from Marion, Kentucky had ever gone to college. So that was something very new for the whole city. When he was getting ready to go to college, he worked all summer long for a farmer to pay his way through college. 
And at the end of the summer, the farmer said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, I can't pay you. He got paid zero. A lot of people would have taken that, well, it's God's will that I not go to college. But he didn't, he, very stubborn. So he started college broke, borrowed money from an uncle of his and uh, bought a paper route and threw papers all through college. He got his engineering degree, he went to Columbia, where I was born, in the jungles of Columbia, way up in the Andes. We were out dredging all the rivers for gold and platinum. We went swimming in a local pond that had a waterfall. Then we found panthers, but they had a den really close to where we were swimming, so that was interesting. It was an exciting place to be. Yeah, that's uh, one way to look at it. Jim could have died. I was five years old when we left to go back to the States. And we always went to church and liked the singing in the church. And, and I got to really like the preacher's daughters, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he dated a few, which must have kept Jim on the straight and narrow. Uh, well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I was a junior in high school and I had two years of paper out. I made about $100 a month and saved most of it to go to college. I had about 130 people on my paper route, rated in one to 10, and 10 being great and one being terrible. And you had the great ones and you had the terrible ones. It was, it was always a uh, spectrum. I guess my worst one was one guy that I collected by the week, and he owed me for five weeks. And he said, come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. I came back tomorrow and he had moved. So. <laughs> So that would be a one. It taught you a lot about people collecting for the paper. When I graduated from college, Bob Landenberger and I were working for a solar oil company and their primary investor went broke. So I was without a job and Bob Landenberger was out of job and we got together and we said, uh, why don't we start our own company? And we said, yeah, we could. That'd be, that'd be a good thing. So I went to Paula, my wife, and asked her, what do you think? She said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. When we started, we had a plan that would go on a half a sheet of paper. One, become consultants, till we could become all operators, and two, to become an oil company where we had working interest. So we went out, we had no money, had no savings, and he had uh, six kids and I had two kids. And we had absolutely no money to start out with and no way to get any money. If we don't make money, we don't eat. That's pretty rigid. That's a lot of pressure. But we kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. Adventures. <laughs> and what a voice you're hearing. And it's not just a well, it's just not a Midland, Texas voice. It's an American voice. It's an American entrepreneur's voice. And so many of those voices sound the same. More of Jim Henry's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return for the story of Jim Henry. And, you know, we had talked about that voice of the American entrepreneur earlier and just how much it pained him to lay somebody off and how he vowed to never do that again. And by the way, I just love that line, I'd rather be around than be rich. And that's, uh, it's true. And so let's go back to West Texas and to the story of Jim Henry. We like to hit singles and doubles. We don't go for home runs, except when you get a slow, fat one right over the plate, knock it out of the park. And we did. We have always been drilling in the Sprayberry Formation. Sprayberry is the name of a certain level of rock and sand below the Earth's surface in the Permian Basin. For 50, 60 years or so, we drill down through the wolf camp. Another level of rock formation and yet another interesting choice in name. Which is below the Sprayberry. And we would get very little oil out at all. You get a barrel or two out and then it wouldn't produce any more. It was too tight. The ground was too tight. It wasn't permeable enough for a lot of oil to flow out of it. Even after what they call fracking, it, shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals down the well to break up the rock. It wasn't until George Mitchell came along and figured out how to frack these sands. Mitchell, a then 78-year-old entrepreneur, was just trying to keep his company alive. And his team had this crazy idea to try a different mixture that was mostly water and give it a special friction reducer that allows it to be pumped at a much higher pressure. What they decided to call slick water fracturing. Everyone thought it was crazy because the water would just bounce with crazy speed off the rock and shoot back up, flooding out the well. But it worked like crazy. The slick water seemed to go out in every direction in the rock, creating complex mini networks of cracks and enabling the gas to flow to the surface. It took 18 years for him to figure it out, but he's the one that did it. He needs to get more credit for that. In 2000, virtually no one knew what Mitchell's team was up to, and those that did still thought they were crazy. <laughs> but an unknown guy named Dennis Phelps was also open to trying anything. He had talked to George Mitchell, and he knew the Mitchell technique. Phelps was working for an energy company called Arco and was just starting to have some success with slick water experiments in the Wolfberry, the combined nickname for the Sprayberry and Wolf Camp formations, until he was told to stop. In about 2000, the Arco sold out to BP, and BP decided they didn't want to do the wolf bear. Which led to Dennis Phelps deciding to take an early retirement package. Disheartened, he moved across the state to East Texas and hoped to start a consulting business. A year into it, it wasn't working out so well, and so he called a friend from his old church in Midland, Dennis Johnson, who just happened to be the president of Henry Petroleum. Johnson decided to give Phelps $500 a day to consult on a rather humdrum project. But a year goes by and Henry Petroleum is offered the opportunity to drill on a former 
Arco lease, only two to three miles from where Phelps had his experiments. And so they called him in. And we got Dennis Phelps to show us how he did it with Arco. And so we did it that way. And then we got better and better at it. We drilled it two wells, 16 miles apart. And they both turned out really good wells. Typically, when you're outlying the boundaries of an oil field, it's a lot smaller. One miler is the most, so we had a huge field. At 16 miles wide, Jim estimated that it had about 3 billion barrels of oil in it, which would have made it the largest discovery in the area in 50 years. And we thought that maybe the whole Midland Basin would be good for the Wolfberry. So we started branching out, drilling in different places, and it all turned out good. And so they wanted more land in the area to explore. And they had to do it all in secret so that their competitors wouldn't catch on. They weren't even allowed to tell their closest family and friends about their new endeavor. Geologists and engineers were told to keep maps and well logs locked in their desk drawers, only to be taken out when needed. And Jim's seven so-called landmen and seven freelancers went out pouring over deed records in county courthouses, hunting down the names of the landowners in the area, and had to convince them to lease the mineral rights below their land. If there was something there, the landowner would get a nice piece of the action too, 25% of all oil and gas revenue from their land. And they got a lot of land. We acquired 330,000 acres, leased it, a tremendous amount. That's most amount I've ever heard anybody leasing. That's about 20 square miles. And then we drilled on it. Nobody believed us. They couldn't believe that we were actually making really good wells. And plus, we put it in Sprayberry Fields. So people said, oh, Jim's just drilling Sprayberry wells. They're not very good. They didn't know it was a, a new technique, a new way of doing it. We were making a lot of money, and they didn't know it. So for three years, we had it all to ourselves. Now, well, when I drilled two wells 16 miles apart, we discovered over a billion barrels of oil, which is a tremendous amount of oil. And I said it was going to be about three or four billion barrels of oil come out of this field. And I was wrong. It's about 30 or 40 billion barrels of oil that's going to come out of the field. And we had 10 rigs running at one time and 100 people, and we said, we don't like big. I didn't know the names of all the people in our company, so we decided to sell. So we did. We sold out to Concho, and we started a foundation where we can give back to the city that gave us so much. The mission of the Henry Foundation is refreshing for how short, simple, and to the point it is. Focusing resources to change lives. That's it. It says it all. Let's see, focusing resources to change lives, five. I believe that you should talk in five words or less. And whenever I talk to the Lord, he's very direct and doesn't speak in very many words. 
But the idea is uh, stitching time saves nine. You put fences at the top of a cliff to prevent Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, campfires. Those people prevent boys and girls from going astray. And instead of paying for an ambulance, because ambulances are extremely expensive, you can save 10 lives at the top of the hill, and so you don't have to do all this ambulance at the bottom of the hill. Jim could have held on to his discovery for longer and potentially made more money from it, but the price of oil was at the high price of $145 a barrel, and he wanted to make sure that his employees would benefit from the fruits of a high sales price that this would generate. What ended up being $584 million. The top 20 probably all got over a million dollars each. And the rest of them got to three or four times their yearly salary. So we made a lot of people happy. when. <laughs> Plus, for Jim, working was never really about making money, at least not in the way that you might think. We weren't really interested in making a bunch of money, but uh, I'll take that back. I was interested in making a bunch of money because the foundation can use the money. We started back over with 20 people and then got it going again and did very well in two more years, sold out again. Then from then, it was hard to get back in after that. And we finally got back in and now we're going very strong. We have about 50 people right now. What we're doing in the industry is, is providing cheap fuel to heat homes and, and provide fuel for cars to run. We're making oil cheaper. It's now cheaper than it was for the last 20, 30 years. And when we come back, you'll hear more about Jim Henry, this Texan's life, an American life, a classic American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final portion of oil man Jim Henry's remarkable American Dreamer story. Jim Henry is all about adventure. Love the, uh, the quote from Helen Keller, security is merely a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So I had to ask him, what's your best? adventures. Look behind you. <laughs> behind me was a wall that was full of pictures of Jim's greatest adventures. One is me repelling off of the Wilco building, which is 22 stories. Uh, another is me hang gliding uh, over in Cabo San Lucas, I think. And then every five years on my birthday, I jump out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've done that when I was 75 and 80. Now I'm going to do it when I'm 85, which would be uh, about a year away. So, <laughs> the most uh, thrilling adventure was jumping off of a 140-foot bridge, bungee jumping off a 140-foot bridge, and uh, I have a fear of heights. So there I am, standing on the edge of that, holding on to the back end, and he, he said, "You can let go now." <laughs> So I, that's it if I'm going to do it. I, I also have a background, some in the theater. And in the theater, you learn how to get rid of your fears. And uh, you, you just go at it as hard as you possibly can go. So I dived as hard as I could. I, I jumped as hard as I could. And it turned out great. So. Jim got this sense of adventure from his old man. In South America, he would tell us these willy-nilly stories about a little dog called willy-nilly, and, uh, and we'd lay in bed. It's always bedtime stories. And one day, Jim wasn't the one inside of the bed. He was the one on top of it doing the storytelling. I told willy-nilly stories to my kids, and I added a character. Uh, willy-nilly's a dog, and I added a rabbit, Thumper, that is his best friend. Don't remember any of the stories. I made him up at the time. I just make up a different one every time. Just ask them, what do they want to hear about? And so we'll make up a story about that. So then I started telling my stories to my grandkids. And Jim compared his storytelling craft to the songwriting craft of Buddy Holly, who had a live audience. And he'd write his songs, and the audience didn't like it. He would change it to make it better. Well, that's what I would do, too. If the, the kids started going to sleep, I would uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, make it more, more exciting. <laughs> I have one, uh, Justin, uh, he's, he's now 18, but uh, he'd go to sleep most every time, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> and my cousin said, where can I buy some of these willy-nilly stories? And I thought, well, maybe we should do something about that. So I started uh, tape recording the stories to a live audience. Now, I'd tell a story based on what they wanted to hear. 175 stories. That Jim's recorded and has been able to turn into five books so far. He's got plenty more material to choose from for the next ones. And I've got this little feeling that Jim will be recording some more too. We hope to maybe get 20 books at least. We can make two books a year. So that'd be another 10 years. Uh, I won't be around probably, but. <laughs> I happen to love adventure stories. And I see every children's adventure show I can see. I think Tangles is the best that's come out in the last five years or so. But I just love them and I plagiarize wherever I possibly can. So. <laughs> you go into a different world like uh, C.S. Lewis, he goes through a closet, a wardrobe, and then a train station maybe. And I, I go through it by using a tornado sometimes. I go through it by falling down a hole like you do in Alice in Wonderland. You can go down into a mine or a cave. I have grandsons uh, that are just addicted to their iPhone and iPad or whatever. They're, and that's what they do. They come home from school and they just sit down and play on that. Uh, and I think they need uh, more adventure. They need to get out and get more into it. And 
Reading books is a good way to do it too. A good way to inspire your own adventures and a great way to learn character through the stories. We try to make them subtle, not too in your face sort of thing. Never lying, never deceiving people. Always trying to do the right thing. It gets across in the books, I think, I hope, but it's more of, a, of an attitude kind of than telling each part, don't lie, don't the Ten Commandments and everything like that. Just like how they're having fun doing something right. At the time of our interview, Jim Henry was 84 years old, and he's still working full days. I work from about nine to five or so, something like that. I'm working on willy-nilly books. I'm working on our company. What's our company going to be doing? One of the reasons that Jim can keep working like this is his health. He's very intentional about it, and he encourages his whole team to as well, paying for everyone's gym memberships and for his top executives to receive health examinations and guidance from our friends at the Cooper Clinic, whose founder, Ken Cooper, invented aerobics and catalyzed this little thing we now know well as jogging. Oh. Cooper has kept me on the track of uh, keeping up my exercise regime. I want to keep our team in good health. And they go to Cooper Clinic and they tell them, well, you've got to lose 30 pounds, so, <laughs> and they do. I probably average five hours a week, five days a week, uh, an hour each time. I do swimming a couple of times, I play tennis once. I do the Swin Aerodyne about a couple of times, and sometimes I think I may overdo it. I hope not, but uh, my wife says I overdo it, so I do strength training twice a week, which I forgot to mention in the other things. I do push-ups and chin-ups and pull-ups and crunches and, let's see, bridges and uh, uh, what's the other thing, and bridges, and uh, but uh, I do wall sets uh, and do all of those and so I used to do 15 chin-ups now I can only do five uh, because sometime along the way I, I, I just didn't keep it up but uh, I'll be up to 10 pretty soon I think. <laughs> <laughs> Will Jim Henry ever stop working out or working? No, no. Uh, I probably will not be able to work uh, after a while. Uh, and then I'll have to do something. Uh, but uh, it's too much fun. And what does Jim's wife Paula think about all of her husband's activity? Well, she said, uh, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so she's glad I go to, go to work. <laughs> And great job, as always, on that, Alex. And by the way, those stories that Jim Henry was talking about, we've got copies here at the studio, and they're so good. The artwork is beautiful. The stories, well, he's right. Jim is right. Kids need to have more adventures in their lives. WillyNillyStories.com will inspire that way of thinking. WillyNillyStories.com. And Jim's story reminds us of 
Well, the very first American Dreamers stories we had done here on Our American Stories, and that was the Home Depot story, the founding of this great American company. And that was Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and Arthur Blank, and all three of them. Well, the jobs they created, the tax base they created, the employees they took care of, the number of millionaires they created. And that's what Job Creators Network is all about, helping push policies that help small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. Jim Henry's story, an American dreamer's story, a Texas story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you're hearing the music of a great American city, New Orleans, or if you spent a lot of time there, New Orleans. And by the way, I have, my wife and I got married there. She's a Biloxi girl, Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Orleans is, well, it's not far away. That's the home city for her, home football team, home everything. And New Orleans is perhaps the most recognizable well, cuisine in America, shrimp, po'boys, oysters, Rockefeller, the list goes on. This next story isn't just about food, though. It's about one of the most important chefs in America today, a woman who provided a place for the civil rights movement to change the nation, but also cooked up some really great Creole food while doing so. Here's Monty Montgomery and Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography, with the story of Leah Chase. She's fed everyone from George W. Bush to Barack Obama. Ray Charles would write a song about her restaurant, where Martin Luther King Jr. and other activists would draft plans for the civil rights movement. And Tiana from the animated Disney movie The Princess and the Frog was inspired by her. Leah Chase is the Queen of Creole and is still cooking today. And every day Dookie Chase's is open, even at the age of 95. Well, certainly as a, a role model for how to age, she's, she's it. I mean, that's something that she just is, never gives up, never sat down and said, oh, I'm gonna eat bonbons now or whatever, you know. She's definitely still goes to her restaurant every day, um, but she's just such a role model in so many other ways. So starting out, she worked in the kitchens of uh, white restaurants and during the Jim Crow South period. And these were often white tablecloth restaurants where she was working. And she noticed that black people didn't really have restaurants. So she was getting married to a man named Dookie Chase and his family had a, a bar and sandwich shop. And so she said, let's turn this into a real restaurant for African-Americans. Leah Chase would marry Edgar Dookie Chase II, a musician by trade, in 1946. But the sandwich stand that would later become the famed restaurant it is today had very humble beginnings. And a bit of luck. Literally. Here's Leah Chase. Well, my mother-in-law first started this. And the reason she started it because her husband was sickly. And he was he would go out and 
people from Chicago and all the places, you would call his job a numbers runner. But in New Orleans, we were very sophisticated. So it wasn't a numbers runner, it was a lottery vendor. <laughs> so you see, we put class to that. But that's how he did. And he'll, he couldn't go from house to house for, to get his clients and all that. So because he was sick, so she opened up this little sandwich shop. But so she did that and not knowing anything. But she knew she could make a sandwich, she knew she could cook, and she borrowed $600 from a brewery. Can you imagine starting a business today with $600 and no knowledge of what you're doing? She was a good money manager, that I'm not. My husband used to call me a bankrupt sister to come to bankrupt. <laughs> She'll spend everything you got, and I would. And Leah Chase wasn't just opening the doors of cuisine to people who'd been shut out of it for so long. She was also opening the doors of her restaurant to everyone in the community. She had this, this kind of streak in her that was so generous. So if people who lived in the neighborhood couldn't, couldn't afford the food, she would take a, a, a painting or she would take something else from them. And so she has one of the best collections of African-American art that you will ever see. And it's all on display in the restaurant. In addition to that, she, um, she opened her doors to white people. And that was totally against the law. But through just the fact that she made everybody behave and all of that sort of thing, and she had good relationships with the police, they turned a blind eye to it. And they actually, she, you know, a mayor, the mayor could come or the police chief could come and meet with people that he might need to meet with in the uh, African-American community at Dookie Chase. So there was actually a useful political purpose to some of this. But then it also became a place where you could, the, the planning of the the civil rights movement happened there. And so she was involved in all of this and was so wonderful about opening her doors. By the 1960s, Dookie Chase's wasn't just changing the way people came together around a plate of food. It was also providing a space for people to come together looking to change America. And I don't know how we did it, but as I said, my mother-in-law was a kind, kind person. And you didn't have any African-Americans on a police force at that time, they were all white, but they would come around and she would say, baby, I'm gonna fix you a little sandwich. So she would fix them a sandwich, give them a little, today they would call that bribery. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just that kind of person. She liked to do things for you. She liked to give. So she would do that. Maybe that helped us out because nobody ever bothered us. We had Jim Dombrowski, all the Ben Smith who started what this all kinds of things right in that restaurant and nobody ever bothered us. Well once you got inside those doors, nobody ever, ever bothered you. The police would never come in and bother our customers, never. So they felt safe to come there. They could eat, they could plan all the freedom riders. That's where we planned, they planned all their meetings. They would come and we would serve them a bowl of gumbo and fried chicken. So I said, we changed the course of America 
over boiled gumbo into fried chicken. The primary purpose of a restaurant is to serve food. But the obvious secondary purpose is to provide a place where people can come together and talk to each other face to face. Dookie Chase has provided that space to people who were previously unable to, and talking is something that Leah Chase still places a high value on today. That's what we're not doing. We're not talking. Come together. I don't care if you're Republican or what you are. Come together. Talk. And I know those old guys. I was friends with old guys like Tip O'Neill and all those people. They knew how to come together and talk. And and you would disagree, maybe that's okay. But you would talk and we would come to a good thing and meet. And so that's what we did in that restaurant. Even at 95, Leah Chase continues to work in her restaurant every single day it's open and also continues to open the doors to everyone in the New Orleans community and beyond. And she's not planning on settling down anytime soon. It's just not in her nature. Keep trying to do a little bit every day. Every day you do a little bit, try to make it better. And that's been my whole life. Well, I came up in the country, small town, had to do everything, had to haul the water, had to wash the clothes, do this, do that pick the dumb strawberries, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but still, my daddy insisted that we act nice, we kind. And you know, my mother taught us, she was tough on us. And she said, you know, Leah, she taught, gave us all this plaque. To be a good woman, you have to first look like a girl. Well, I thought I looked like a girl. Act like a lady, that I never learned to do. <laughs> Think like a man. Now, don't act like that man. Think like a man and work like a dog. (laughs) So we learned that the hard way. And they taught you that. They taught you what women had to do. We were taught that women control the behavior of men. How you act, they will act. The change Leah brought to America can't be understated. She is a revolutionary but she's still on the move, never looking back, but always looking forward. And she has some advice on that. The thing we have to do in in this city and in all cities, mamas have to start being mamas today. You know, they have to start understanding when you bring this child in the world, you have to make a man out of it, you have to make a woman out of it. And that takes some doing. It takes sacrifice. Maybe you won't have long fingernails, maybe you won't have the pretty hair, but that child will be on the move. And that's what you have to do. We have to concentrate on educating and making these children understand what it's all about. Sometimes you do hard things to make changes, and that's what you have to tell young people today. Okay, you can protest, you can do, but put the past behind you. I can't make you responsible for what your grandfather did. That's your grandfather. I have to build on that. I have to make changes. I can't stay there and say, oh, well, look what they did us then. Look what they did now. You remember that, but that makes you keep going on. But you don't hop on it every day. You move, and you move to make a difference. And everybody should be involved. My children said, Mother, don't get political, you know. (laughs) 
Don't get political because you know we don't like that. But you have to be political today. You have to be involved. Be a part of the system. And great work as always to Monty Montgomery, our intrepid Hillsdale intern. And thanks to Hillsdale, to Dr. Larry Arn, the folks there for lending us their best and brightest each and every summer. Thanks to Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography. And thank you for the story of Leah Chase, her story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Sign. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, My father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that, and I loved that, because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians, and the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was, but um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery 
and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired And his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument 
and this song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. I am a living legacy to the leader of the band. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. Uh, The stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of the Doors music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last art past a year, five years? Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music or Pink Floyd's music or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare? Why? And were those writers, when they were writing it, thinking about creating art that lasts or just getting out there and making a hit? Well, it turns out that there's a man who's tried to answer that question in a book. Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist who has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Tony Robbins. We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from. In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, He desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he, he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism, and, and basically his premise is, how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we, we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a, a, a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term. We know there are these books that, that last and last. And yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it it's strange where most of the 
energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it? Right. You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I, I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a, a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it? And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation. But it did endure, you know, it, it was published in 1937 and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads, divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It, it, it was given a second edition 10 years later, so 1947 or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was published in a third edition and it's still reading today and and here I am talking to to you guys about it and so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time it's earned the author a cult like following among fellow writers and creatives and I think what's so impressive is that he set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it he has another quip he said you know I'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat. And it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are. James Salter is one of my favorite novelists. I was, was reading one of his books not long ago and on the back, which wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written by him, but it, it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I, I just love that idea. I, I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time. And by my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time. I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands had released their albums decades before I was born. Um, they were still going strong by the time I came around. I, I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking, how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical could have endured and, and somehow been so, so timeless and, and true even to a, a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer, I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And and yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that it's the, the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings, and they, they hope you'll go away. And that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies. And, and, you know, now, 10 years after its release, it sells about 
300 copies a week. And I, I went on as a marketer. I became the director of marketing in American Apparel. And it was interesting at the, this company, which sold hundreds of millions of garments, every year the best-selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory. It was, And they had this mission of making making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future. And I just love this idea of making things that can last with with my own books you know perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the new york times bestseller list uh for the most part and yet quietly and and like clockwork they sell about five thousand copies across the various titles at every single week and the marketing for them has long since finished and yet you know surprise uh one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week, a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the the best book to have written as a creative would have been what to expect when you're expecting, because every day in every part of the world, uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do. And so I'm I'm fascinated by that kind of work, the 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 work that endures, and it it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure. And so I was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common? And I, I set out, I, I interviewed uh, all sorts of of authors and editors and producers and. Uh, marketers and entrepreneurs and and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last and I you know I found a few things I think first is that work needs to be unique if it, it's very hard for it to endure if it is not definitive if it if, if it doesn't stand out stand alone and yet on the other hand it should do a very simple job I think one of one of my editors said to me one time she said Ryan it's not what a book is it's what a book does. And by that she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator. It's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it, it helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question, this is a blank that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're gonna have a lot of trouble. I, I was interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time, it's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles, you know, he puts the top down, he puts it on the stereo and he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience that the idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something i think that people miss and and so that that's an essential part of this sort of creative process and when we come back more from ryan holiday on his book perennial seller and my goodness what a fascinating question what makes things last not just art products heck maybe even a marriage more after these messages. Like 
And we continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller. And here is Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career. In 2001, I, I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song by the band Iron Maiden. I, I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that that seven-minute song, I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth, that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years, over many different presidents, that that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would, would help me make a living as a writer. But a few weeks ago, I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show. It would have been, you know, 20,000 people in the audience. And next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on Instant Messenger about this band that I'd just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own, that they perform exclusively for, right? So most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television, to be on the radio, to get new fans. And, and Iron Maiden has said, that their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, he, he said, you know, we're like farmers. We have our field and we're tilling that field. We don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager. He said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible, uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And, and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that, that, that they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always, I've always taken a great lesson from that. How, how, do you, how do you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the, the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive 
sort of community or cult or club with you. And and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that. You know, how to how to develop that thing. You know, Stefan Zwig would say, and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden, he, he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following, a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it, who trusted me and whose trust I must not disappoint. And I think that's wonderful advice, whether you're, you know, a baker or a mechanic or a best-selling author or a multi-platinum musician is how do you achieve that following and, and build that platform? That, that's, that's what the book is ultimately about. And here's Ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing. I talk to many creatives and writers and entrepreneurs, and I, I tend to find that they follow a, an arc where they, they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making. And it takes everything they have, and they get there, they limp across this finish line, and they think they're done. And sadly, that's not true. I liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish. And when you walk across the finish line, instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck, they, they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again. And that second marathon is, is marketing. How do you get attention for that work? If you, if you can't, find an audience, then so much of that work was likely in vain. There was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But Making art for a living is a privilege, and one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling. Uh, there's a line from Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. He said, if you don't see any salespeople in your organization, then you're the salesperson. Who's going to pitch your work if not you? Right? Who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it? And so that's what I end up telling a lot of creatives. There's no magical firm that you can hire. There's no magical button you can press. There's no magical media outlet. Even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book, Perennial Seller, is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it. And so if you're not going to do it, who will? Peter Drucker, the management expert, he said that each project needs someone who says, I'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it. That that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as a essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or, you know, developing the uh the vintage of wine that you're you're selling or the the boots that you wanted to produce, right? How can that be as much of a of a canvas to paint on to make something special as as the thing you you made itself? And 
a lot of creatives fail at this. I mean, the, the, the shelves grown with unwatched movies and unread books and, you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind. You know, if you build it, they will not come. That is not how it works. You have to make them. You have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full, until the the, the seats are filled. And that's why you did this work in the first place, right? Certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project purely for their own satisfaction. Otherwise, why would they have ever released it in the first place? And so that idea of, of taking ownership of, of it is the difference, I think, between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies. And I think every artist would rather, whether they admit it or not, reach five million people than five. And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. 
For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way, but as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, Being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come 
I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that, but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, 
I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story builds here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 